Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 2nd of August, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today is myself, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted to be joined by Vanessa Beely from Damascus. We have Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondent, and we also have a guest who will be talking on the subject of statistics and data and findings around vaccines. So, Vanessa, straight away, we're going to kick off, and you've got a, I think, a really important section here, which is what's happening in Niger in, in Africa. Yeah, um, very interesting developments, of course. Uh, now three Sahel countries, uh, 60 million population have had popular coups in uh, the last few months and seventh military takeover in Sahel since 2020. Sorry. If we can just play uh, the video from uh, Nico House, an analyst uh, that everyone can follow on YouTube, on Twitter, etc. He gives a pretty good summary of what has happened so far. So in case you missed the news, Niger has had a military coup. And I'm letting you know right now, before all the Western media tells you they want democracy back in Niger, let me tell you the real reason for this coup and why not all coups are created equally. This is Mohamed Bazoum, the former, or current, depending on how you look at it, president of Niger. As you can see, he's a little bit cozy with Emmanuel Macron. This is important, and we're gonna talk about it in a sense. You see, Macron is actually the president of France, and 70% of France's electricity comes from nuclear power. Niger is the fourth largest producer of uranium in the world, and guess who predominantly mines their uranium? A French company called Areva. Guess whose company provides most of the nuclear power to France? Areva. Now, despite Niger basically being a French colony, their president basically being a puppet of Macron in France, only one in seven people who live in Niger have power, despite the majority of their number one resource, which provides power, going to France basically for free. So because of the president's loyalty to Macron and unwillingness to fight for Nigerians, people in Niger literally can't keep their lights on if they've ever had lights at all. While France plunders Niger for its natural resources. And you're going to have plenty of Western media people and, and leaders from the Western world coming out and saying they want democracy in Niger. But let's not forget, this is the same US in France that overthrew Gaddafi in Libya. And we literally have open market slavery in Libya right now in 2023. And they haven't done anything about it because they don't care about democratically elected individuals unless they play for the so um, very interesting sort of introduction to what's going on. The one point that I would make is Areva now has been rebranded as Orano. Orano has set up a crisis unit in Nigeria since the military overthrow. Um, they claim that only one of their mines is operational, although they have three mines uh, currently in Niger. So the headlines from the West, how a pro-Putin coup threatens Europe's nuclear supplies. Of course, it's Russia's fault, Putin's fault. Russia rapidly expands its influence in Niger in an alliance against the West. Nothing to do, of course, with the neo-colonialist raping and plundering of the African continent for decades. Then moving on, um, we can see this is from Africa Archives on Twitter. The military uh, regime in Niger has, with immediate effect, banned the export of uranium to France over 50%. I have to say that the figures are varying. 
uh, on the uranium ore extraction from Niger, which is used for fueling French nuclear power plants. 24% of EU uranium imports comes from Niger. Um, now, I have also been reading that uh, the actual export has not yet been stopped, but there is potential that it will be stopped, and there are definitely fears in Europe that it will be stopped. So moving on. Um, so the U.S., this is interesting, sees a narrow opportunity to reverse the coup in Niger as ousted president meets Chad's leader. So let's see what the U.S. has to say. Pretty predictable if we move on. Um, so it still sees a narrow window of opportunity to reverse a military takeover, a senior U.S. official said on Monday. Niger's democratically, so there you have the democratic uh, trope coming in, Elected President Mohamed Bazoum, who was ousted in a coup last week, was seen for the first time in photographs released on Monday, carrying on. <clears throat> uh, so again, we have the, the repetition of the fact that it's been the anchor for Western-backed counter-terrorism campaign for years in Africa's volatile Sahel region, even though, of course, we know that Boko Haram and, and the various Al-Qaeda, ISIS affiliates have been, in fact, incubated and implanted there by the West to disrupt China and uh, Russia's influence, particularly in this region. Um, they have called Niger a democratic model for the region, etc., etc. So we're hearing exactly, as Nico mentioned, these democratic labels being put upon uh, the deposed government. Uh, a recap, 7.5% of world uranium is extracted from Niger. Population, 17 million, one of the poorest nations in the world. Life expectancy sorry, is 45, and one in four children die before the age of five. France's only interest is to mine the uranium in the sub-Saharan desert. Over 50% of uranium extracted from Niger is to light France. Only 10 to 20% of people in Niger urban areas have electricity, as was mentioned. So moving on, I think now to the map. So this shows you where Niger is. It's interesting to note that Mali, uh, Burkina uh, Faso, Guinea and Algeria have all come out in support of the interim government in Niger. Very interesting. And remember that from previous reports on UK column, I've pointed out that the NATO forces have withdrawn effectively to Mauritania um, <clears throat> to the northwest of Niger and the coalition uh, of African nations that is now forming against imperialism. Very interesting times here. Moving on to, uh, I think, what do I have next? Yes, Captain Ibrahim Traore, who is uh, effectively the interim president uh, of Burkina Faso. From him, when we the people decide to defend ourselves, we are called militias. He presume, I presume he means in the West. But that is not the problem. The problem is to see African heads of state who bring nothing to these people who are fighting, but who sing the same songs as the imperialists, calling us militias, calling us men who don't respect human rights. What human rights are we talking about? We take offense at this and it's shameful. We African heads of state must stop behaving like puppets who dance every time the imperialists pull the strings. Glory to our people, victory to our people, fatherland or death. We shall conquer. Now, this reminds me very much of Thomas Sankara, also former leader assassinated uh, of Burkina Faso. And here we have uh, a short statement from Ibrahim Traore on neocolonialism. It's in French uh, with subtitles. 
Les questions que mes générations sont, se posent sont les suivantes, si je peux me résumer. C'est de ne pas comprendre comment l'Afrique, avec tant de richesses sur notre sol, avec une nature généreuse, de l'eau, du soleil en abondance, l'Afrique est aujourd'hui le continent le plus pauvre. L'Afrique est un continent affamé. Et comment se fait-il que les chefs d'État traversent donc le monde à mendier Voici des questions que nous nous posons et que nous n'avons pas de réponse jusque-là. Nous avons l'occasion de tisser de nouvelles relations. Et j'espère que ces relations puissent être les meilleures pour donner un meilleur avenir à nos peuples. Pour ce qui concerne le Burkina Faso, aujourd'hui nous sommes confrontés depuis plus de huit ans à la forme de manifestation la plus barbare, la plus violente du néocolonialisme, de l'impérialisme. L'esclavage qu'on tend encore à nous imposer. And as mentioned, Burkina Faso and Mali say that they will not consider a regional military intervention in Niger as a and or they will consider, sorry, a regional military intervention in Niger as a declaration of war against them. Of course, the France and the UK, James Cleveley, are going through ECOWAS, the economic community of West African states, to impose sanctions now on the Niger uh, government, the new government. Um, and they're talking about using force on Sunday to reimpose uh, the so-called democratic uh, government of President Mohamed Bezoum. Um, so basically, Mali and Burkina Faso have refused to enforce the illegal, illegitimate and inhuman sanctions, as I said, imposed by ECOWAS against the people and authorities of Niger. Both countries made their stance clear, emphasizing that any military intervention against Niger would be considered a declaration of war against Burkina Faso and Mali. Such an intervention would prompt their withdrawal from the organization itself. And also, as I mentioned, Algeria and Guinea have come out in support of Niger. Um, here again, Traore mentions in, in a speech to Putin recently in St. Petersburg, I want to note that the friendship at this important stage between the Russian and the Burkinese people, Russia is is currently conducting a special military operation. And be sure that our people support you. We support your government. Some of our traditional partners turn their backs on us. And then we see who our true friend is, namely Russia, which supported us back in the era of colonization and continues to support us today. And then uh, I think we have a short video, again, uh, Traore addressing Putin, I recommend following this channel on YouTube, Swahili Nation. They're doing a very good job of keeping up with events in Africa at the moment. I think that during the summit we learned about the events in Niger, where the military took over the government and that affects us directly and I mentioned that in my address yesterday I also met uh, with some heads of state, uh, states on the sidelines of the summit and they shared uh, about things that happen in their countries in our region so indirectly something that these are the challenges that Russia is 
Um, and so basically what we're seeing here is an emergence of a new pan-Arabism, just as we've seen recently the emergence of a new pan, uh, sorry, pan-Africanism. And we've seen a new emergence of pan-Arabism uh, across the Arab world with the normalization of relations with Syria. And I just want to end on a slightly lighter note. This was um, a Ugandan diplomat from uh, the embassy in uh, Russia, in St. Petersburg, who caused quite a stir by wearing a Putin T-shirt to day one of uh, the Russia-African summit. Just roll this just quickly to see him. As I said, just so, to end Vanessa, on, a, on a lighter note. <laughs> Vanessa, just give us a few words for that, because obviously there was uh, no commentary. So for people listening in, what did you pick up? Well, I mean, I think what this is uh, symbolic of, I mean, it, it, it is comical uh, and it caused quite a stir. But I think it's sending quite a serious message is that now what we're seeing um, across the Sahel region in particular, is the overthrow of um, pro-colonization uh, governments in favor of military regimes that are interesting in establishing a pan-Africanism and protecting and uh, nationalizing their own resources and preventing the plundering of those resources by imperialist nations, namely France and the UK and, and other countries in the EU. So I think, although it, it was a comical moment, I think it also carries a, a, a very important uh, symbol to the West that, that Africa now feels that it has allies upon which it can rely um, to bring them into economic security, food security, energy security, and the multipolar world that they are all talking about. Extraordinary time, actually. Okay, uh, Vanessa, thank you for that excellent uh, segment. What came into my mind, of course, was uh, Tony Blair and, of course, Theresa May calling at one stage for greater EU military intervention in the whole of that uh, area of uh, Africa. So I think there's a lot more to come. We'll leave that one there. Thank you very much. Well, let's move over to some strange things. Uh, UK columns often said to viewers, uh, think about policy and where policy comes from as we see various things enacted in UK. And I received an email yesterday from a lady called Nicola. She said this, I'm just catching up on yesterday's show. This sounds very similar to what's happening in Wales and what I've been writing about over two years. Below is just one article. And uh, what was this about? This is Nicola Lund. She is uh, one of the uh, journalists who works for the Conservative Woman, obviously TCW being 
uh, has been putting out some really excellent information. And here was uh, the title of her article, Grave New World to the Welsh. But look at the date. It's back on October the 7th, 2021. And uh, if we bring in a little bit of detail on this, um, she's talking about, well, a rugby trophy, but this is no prize. The triple challenge describes the cumulative and individual impact of Brexit, COVID-19 and climate change on health, well-being and equity in Wales, public health Wales, in a, quote, low profile partnership with the World Health Organization Collaborating Center has released its word salad of a report, the first of a series, which provides a strategic overview of these three seismic events and their impact and their interconnectedness. The report presupposes that Brexit could be looked back upon as jointly responsible for all of Wales' future problems together with the fallout from COVID and the threat of climate change. And uh, if we just put a bit over the top of it, she goes on to say, uh, Wales equivalent to the United Nations Agenda 2030, the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act 2015. And so what we're seeing here is that uh, essentially Actually, um, UN policy, global globalist policy, now being driven into uh, the very legislation which is coming out of Parliament in Wales. And uh, here we can see how this is uh, affecting us. And uh, if we add a bit on this, and we'll go back, I'm sorry, but uh, we must do it, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Uh, he's talking about massive change across the whole structure of Britain, a new national purpose. Innovation can power the future of Britain. Now, I'm not going to do too much detail on this. I will say that as far as Tony Blair is concerned, if you try and get into this site, you can't do it without being tracked via his cookies. Um, so beware of that, but there's not a lot you can do. This gives you, this picture just gives you a bit of a feel because it's all AI based on uh, on what it, what's being talked about here with the changes across government, politics, society. Uh, but I picked up this. This is a key person mentioned by name in Blair's report. And um, what's, what's The Guardian saying back in 2020? Kate Bingham, well-connected but under fire UK vaccines chief, Supporters point to a deal over the Pfizer jab, but there is unease over a PR bill and claims she shared information with investors. Well, if we have a look at some of the, the meat on this, it says that in May, Boris Johnson appointed her as chair of the UK Vaccine Task Force, the cru crucial body overseeing investment in her coronavirus inoculations. She quickly got or secured £670,000 for public relations support. Uh, but here is a key statement by The Guardian. It is, quote, it is unclear how Johnson came to appoint Bingham because there was, quote, no formal process, unquote. She's the responsible for developing the strategy for securing access to billions of pounds worth of COVID. And uh, a uh, little bit more here. She's got 30 years experience in uh, the pharmaceutical industry, Pfizer and Entech. She's worked with SV Health. And uh, prior to that, she was working for Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Now, this probably gives us a very good introduction uh, to our guest, Harvey Seligman. The UK column interviewed um, Harvey back in uh, 2021, July, and this was two episodes of No Smoke Without Fire. 
uh, which was myself and Debbie. Um, and uh, we also had um, uh, Dr. Yim with us. And on that note, we'd like to bring in our guest today, Harvey Seligman, uh, who's going to tell us a little bit about his research at the moment around matters to do with vaccines. Uh, Harvey, welcome back to UK Column. I can't really believe it's two years since we spoke to you. Well, hello. Uh, I think many people heard recently about a Danish study showing that, suggesting that there were different levels of toxicity for vaccine batches from uh, Pfizer, production batches, of course. But actually, uh, very recent uh, analysis that I did using uh, uh, a site that watches the VERS reports and is privately curated by a friend, Benavides, Albert Benavides, shows that there, is, there are actually delays in the reports of the VERS uh, report, in, in, the, in the publication of the VERS reports which is seen in this graph with different colors for different reports, uh, reporting different types of events from uh, death to uh, of simple office visit after uh, a vaccination and injection. And what we find is that there are associations between the type of event and the level of delay and also the age of the, of the patient. So the younger, there are fewer delays, but the, for the young, the delays are concentrated for the very severe events like death and permanent disability. For adults, we see the opposite. Now, in addition to that, there are batch-associated delays. It seems that there are sudden releases of data for one batch, let's say a given week, you have zero, zero reports in the VERS system for that, um, for that batch, and then suddenly you have many. And that would explain, apparently, what happened with the different qualities of the Danish report, where they had batches with very few or almost no uh, adverse reports that were presumed to be placebos. When you look at the number of VERS reports for these Danish patches, uh, and that is the vertical uh, axis on the graphics that you see here. I use the same color code as the Danish study, blue, highly toxic batches, green, medium toxicity, and yellow are actually the presumed placebo batches. So you, you plot the number of reports in VERS as a function of the recency, how recent a batch is, how recently expired it did, and that's the x-axis, the horizontal axis. You see that the, recent, uh, the recently expired batches are the yellow ones, and they have, because they are recent, few reports. And there are no different qualities here. You have a monotonous decrease in the number of bat in the number of reports as a function of time until uh, the batch expires. And it's simply that point that we that we have here. Uh, so in short, there are no placebos. There probably is some variation in toxicity between the batches. But the major part, and certainly the part that is shown in that Danish study, 
is due to time and since the batches were used. The ancient batches have many accumulated uh, reports and the recent ones few. That's what I had to say. And such biases totally change our uh, per, what we seem to understand from studies from theirs. Yes. Harvey, thank, thank you very much for that. Just, just to home in on the simple stuff, first of all, uh, we've got a delay between a VAERS report, that's a report of harm equivalent to the uh, yellow card system, uh, which we use here in the UK. We've got a delay between the reports and the publishing of information about possible vaccine side effects. And that delay has then impacted on the way that, that more detailed reports have been compiled. I've got to say to you, first of all, am I understanding that bit correctly? Exactly. That is exactly what is happening. These delays, and they are not random, they are batch associated, with, which can make that a batch. A given week has zero uh, side effects, apparently, and then a week later there is a, a massive release of these data. They probably administratively accumulate per batch and then suddenly we decide according to some kind of order which batch will be released. And it's related, of course, to how recent the batch is. Ancient batches will have everything already released and the others less, sometimes zero, and then suddenly a data release and then they are suddenly at 500 or 1,000 reports for that batch. Okay, so... So as a, as a qualified scientist yourself, what reason can you, can you give the audience or can you think of for such delays to come into being? Is this just incompetence or, is, or are there other factors at work? What, what do you think has been the cause of these delays? Well, I'm a scientist, not an administrator. <laughs> but uh, in short... Uh, it, it makes sense to accumulate for one batch the reports and then publish them, but it creates distortions that will make look as if it's an illusion that some batches have no reports. But what is more problematic is that you have delays that are that correlate, that associate with the type of event, like longer delays for deaths, but only in children, while shorter delays, fewer long delays for deaths for adults. And then for mild uh, secondary effects, you have exactly the opposite again. For children, no or few delays, but for adults, you have a lot of delays. So that makes not so much sense. In addition, the VERS reports frequently miss information such as the age data. And, but so it actually means that in two thirds of these cases where the age data is missing, it's actually, it is in the report, but somewhere else than at the location where it's say the, what age is the person. But in the report itself, in the case description, you have a five-year-old child died from the Pfizer vaccine. And uh, that example is not random. The missing age data will, again, tend to be more often missing at the right location if it is a child and if the event is very severe and vice versa for milder events. So that, I don't know how to explain it by some kind of benign administrative explanation, 
but I'm not within the administrative processes and mechanisms. And I actually had never any experience with these things. Uh, Harvey, Harvey, thank you very much for that. And of course, your uh, example of a child is very significant because, of course, deaths are very sad and emotive for many people. But if it's the death of a child, particularly a young child, that really captures the attention of the public. We've got a number of different factors um, coming into play here. So there's the age of the people, there's the circumstances. This cannot possibly be random. I'm very careful commenting on statistics because I don't claim to have any special knowledge or ability with statistics. But it seems to me that if you have a number of, of well-defined subsets, ages and where events took place, and all of these are suffering a delay, this has got to be orchestrated by the administration releasing this information, surely. So the benign explanation would be that there is a prioritization according to age and according to the gravity, the severity of the event. So there are only 8% delays for the children, but and 30% for the adults. But when there is a significant delay for children, then it's more likely to be for a severe event. The first one would be some kind of administrative prioritization that makes sense, but the other not so much. And I cannot, and then again, the age data missing at the cor correct location in the form, but not, but actually being in the form, this is not random. I'm certain it's not random. I don't know why it is like that. Okay. Harvey, thank you very much for giving us that update. A lot of questions to be answered around that. And um, I'll say to you today, I hope that you will come and join us again to delve deeper into this, because, of course, in UK, we have the same major concerns about data released or withheld by the MHRA around the yellow card, so-called vaccine signals. But thank you very much for joining us. Debbie, um, ideal to bring you in here because you are seeing a wide spectrum of things taking place across um, health, the MHRA and vaccines, COVID. Um, tell us what you've been looking at. Yeah, good afternoon. So I've not done a deep dive on anything in particular this week. I'm gonna cover quite a few topics. And the first topic is always one close to my heart, and those are the board meetings. So we have got the latest NHS England board meeting now up, and also the MHRA board meeting. Now, I did a big write-up on the MHRA board meeting, but please, everybody watching, can you see there are only about 45 views? If you just click in and register your view, they need to know that we are watching them. Same goes for the NHS board meeting, which was only held a few days ago. But what I do need to tell you about the NHS board meeting is that last year, when people were booking for COVID injections and boosters, this year, they're going to be opening up fl uh, flu and COVID clinics. So you can book both jabs at once, regardless of whether they've been studied to be effective or safe together, regardless of which arm you're using. They're going to try and get you to the vaccination centre to have your jabs at once. They've also employed um, a diversity team 
for youngsters, especially youngsters with special educational needs. And it's a long board meeting. It's over two hours. They have a private board meeting in the morning and a dinner in the evening. So we only get to see the public board meeting. If anybody wants to know about the youngsters, the team for ethnic minorities, because they're saying that youngsters with learning disabilities, their life expectancy in the UK is only 35. If you want to see that, it's around 37 minutes on the video. And if you want to look at where you're booking to get all your jabs together on the on the NHS board, it's about one hour, seven minutes. So you can page in to that. Um, so please do look at the board meetings. Um, moving on, I just want to thank Louise very much, um, one of our viewers, for bringing this seventh jab to my attention. Now, I didn't know that this had been rolled out in 2022, and you'll understand why I didn't know about it in a minute, but it's the seventh COVID-19 vaccine authorised by the MHRA. This was authorised in December, in December 22. Now, the reason it's um, different, it's called Vidprevitine Beta, and it's made by Sanofi Pasteur. But when you go and look at the medicinal product itself, you can see that this is a multi-dose vial again, 10 doses per vial. There can be no accuracy. in. You have to dilute it. You have to mix it. You have to shake it. And then you have to get accurate doses. There's no way that anybody can do this. It's dangerous, in my opinion. But also you'll notice that it was produced by recombinant DNA technology using a Bacillo virus expression system in an insect line. Now, this insect line is derived from the army worm. But not only that, this injection has got squalene in it. Now, I didn't realise there was another injection with squalene, but it is. But if we look at the army worm, there you can see it. I just went to DEFRA. It is a pest. Um, the caterpillars are incredibly destructive. We don't know whether this injection, which is preventative for adults only, we don't know if any of these things have been cleared or cleaned. We have no clue. So this is, please watch out for this injection because it seems to be doing the rounds. Um, jumping on to China, it would appear, I don't know if anybody has seen this story, but in Fresno, California, they've discovered what they believe is a, a, an illegal lab operating, uh, which is linked to China, they found the CDC found 900 mice, genetically engineered mice, um, that were engineered to carry and catch the COVID-19 vaccine. But also in the laboratory, they found chlamydia, streptococcus pneumonia, hep B, hep C, herpes 1 and 5, rubella and malaria and E. coli too. And keep a close eye on E. coli. Now, this apparently has been operating illegally since October 2022. So there's been um, Chinese police stations. Now we've got Chinese laboratories. So particularly concerning. And then um, I thought we'd go and look at flu because we're going to be coming up to the flu season soon. And the UK always keeps an eye on what's happening in the Southern Hemisphere. And this is coming from Australia where they're having what they're calling a hard flu season. And they're calling for more antivirals to be used. Well, I don't think we want those, thank you very much, especially not for children. There's been 150,000 cases of influenza by early July. And they're looking at children, of course, age five to 14, that haven't had the jab. So 
what happens in Australia, normally you can expect it to happen in the UK. And indeed, they are already getting ready uh, in the UK. So the NHS are going to unveil special hubs um, because the flu season is going to be bigger than ever. Flu has definitely flown back. And of course, it's linking it then again to Australia. What's curious about this is if we remember three years ago, we weren't allowed to walk out of the door if we were suspected of carrying something. Now we're being encouraged to go to these flu centres if we've got flu or a respiratory condition so we can sprinkle and mingle our bugs quite nicely. Um, and that, of course, goes into line with now the CDC are likely to recommend an annual COVID booster. So this is going to be exactly the same as we had for flu, where everybody would go for their yearly flu jab. Now they want people to go for a yearly COVID jab. So that's something more to look forward to. Um, but I would would say to everybody, um, for anybody that's considering getting a COVID and a flu jab together, not that I suspect that any of you watching are, um, please do check patient information leaflets because none of these injections have been tested together. Um, and you know that I'm always keeping an eye on E. coli very closely um, for a number of reasons. And here we go. Uh, this uh, little park has been closed down because of an E. coli outbreak. Now, clearly what they're looking to do is children not to be petting animals. This is what I can see going forward. The UK HSA have already got involved. So keep your eyes on E. coli, um, especially in the UK. Um, and then I do like to keep my eyes on Sir Christopher Whitty. And um, as an alumni of Gresham, I always look at Gresham, what they're bringing in. And it's very curious, I think, that sudden emergencies like nuclear or chemical incidents, earthquakes or floods um, are being featured by Gresham this year. So medicine after disasters. So who's doing the lectures and when? So the first lecture you can look forward to. And Christopher Whitty, I have to say, normally does lectures on cancer or ageing or dementia or air quality. So for him to be doing uh, a lecture on reducing harms after nuclear, radiological and chemical incidents on Tuesday, the 28th of November is fairly extraordinary. What does he know that we don't? But it doesn't stop there because it seems that Christopher Whitty is also an expert in earthquakes, of which we don't get that that many in the UK, only generally small ones. Uh, I don't think we've got any active volcanoes as far as I'm aware. And the last tsunami that affected the UK was in 17 something, 1750 something. So I'm not quite sure why Sir Christopher Whitty is so interested in volcanoes, tsunamis and earthquakes. But it's not just that, it's floods. And of course, I am the expert on floods. Uh, I'd love to speak to Professor Christopher Whitty on floods. There's so much I could tell him. But he wants to tell us and all of you at Gresham in May next year, 2024. Why is he talking about all of these strange disasters? Uh, Debbie, thank you very much for that. Well, incredible, isn't it? Because uh, we, we've had um, Harvey Seligman pointing out I'm going to call it the fiddling of figures to do with harms from vaccines. And then we've got all this fear related stuff being pushed at us, connecting back into health. And uh, if we think of Tony Blair in the sidelines, he wants to push a particular lady at us, Kate Bingham, who helped drive all of the vaccine agenda. And of course, she had a mere £670,000 to do so. Uh, 
an accident, a coincidence? I don't think so, but we'll come back onto this. Well, if you like what the UK column does, then please come and join us, join the community uh, where you can talk to other like-minded people and share information. That's always a good thing. Uh, you can also support us by buying something from the shop. That would be kind of you. And of course, share the information that we're putting out because one of our key objectives is to get information and facts and data out as far and wide as we can. Now, Debbie, um, 10 seconds on your blog. Well, virgin births, disposable uteruses, face watch, who's watching you, world coin, NHS and Sir Chris Whitty and a bit more. Okay, lovely. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll just put the advert up again for Saturday, the 26th of August at 1pm. Glasgow Green, that's a rally for peace and freedom, which has got to be a good thing. So if you can get to that and attend, please do. Uh, we're also going to put up that uh, uh, we've got an article here, or um, sorry, an interview here, Amy Kelly, an angel with clout. And uh, Debbie, you've been involved in this one and you're back looking at Pfizer and BioNTech. And uh, another one here, uh, this is an interview coming out Thursday the 3rd and uh, that's tomorrow at 1pm, Master of Puppets, The Future of Britain and that's uh, with Ben Rubin. And also we wanted to put up an advert for the Great Net Zero uh, debate. Uh, Sandy Evans uh, doing a lot of good work there and if you have a look at UK column you can see those. So please do. And finally just in our ad section, um, Dr Vernon and Coleman has got a new book out, uh, Unmasking the Globalists. We're going to do a review of that book and also in due course an interview with him. And uh, last uh, reminder again about uh, um, Alternative View 13, Sunday, the 22nd of October, 2023. Uh, where does that bring us? Well, I think it's going to bring us back to Vanessa and I think you're going to take us uh, through events in Syria. Yeah, uh, events are definitely gathering momentum. The US is building up its troop presence and its hardware military presence in the Northeast and in the South at their largest illegitimate military base at Al Tanaf on the border uh, between Syria and Jordan and Syria and Iraq. Um, so just a recap on what's happened. We talked last week about the ISIS terrorist attacks in southern Damascus that ended up killing eight people, injuring more than 23 including mostly women and children. So on July the 30th at 6.53 a.m. at an altitude of 5,000 meters in the Al-Raqqa region, which is kind of central Syria, a dangerous approach by a U.S. MQ-9 drone was again recorded. The drone came within 100 meters of the Su-34, the Russian Su-34 fighter jet. According to Brigadier General Oleg Gurinov, the head of the Russian Reconciliation Center in Syria, According to the same center, drones of the U.S.-led International Coalition violated the safety of flights in Syria 340 times during July 2023. Extraordinary number there. Going on, uh, there have been various other terrorist attacks since the one in southern uh, Damascus. Again, on the 31st of July in Daraa, south of Damascus, Syrian Arab army military bus was targeted by an explosive package killing at least one of the 4th Division soldiers on board identified as Qasim Mohammed al-Hassan. The US and UK incubate terrorist groups in the 55-kilometer exclusion zone around the illegal US military base at al-Tanaf, 
to carry out such attacks on Syrian military positions and convoys and on civilian infrastructure. Um, and it can be safely assumed that Israel has also maintained contact with terror cells still active in southern Syria against Syrian military and government uh, officials. And then moving on again, we have a couple of pictures which we can go through quite quickly of the Al Tanif military base. Um, this is just showing the scale of the base. It is the largest military base, illegal base uh, inside Syria. It does have on board uh, HIMARS uh, artillery, which is the next photograph, which has a maximum range of around uh, 250 kilometers. So it is potentially able to target the outskirts of Damascus from here. In the 55 kilometer exclusion zone, they are training armed groups, including ISIS. On the 31st of July, terrorist, sorry, terrorist media outlets have reported that some leaders of factions in the so-called Syrian National Army, SNA, which is effectively the rebranded Free Syrian Army, among other Muslim Brotherhood-dominated gangs, have been recruiting militants from within the SNA to be posted as border guards in Al Tanif on the Syrian-Jordanian border. Sources indicate that the recruitment is ongoing secretly and that this is a similar mission to Libya with a salary of up to $1,000 per month. Extraordinary when you compare to the $7 to $15 wage paid to a Syrian Arab army soldier for defending their homeland for the last 12 years, um, especially since inflation has increased in Syria and wages have not moved up uh, commensurately. Just have a a quick look uh, from down to Altanaf, it shows how far these moon is maneuvering these armed groups to basically um, protect their military base uh, on the border with Jordan. They are also increasing military presence in Anbar in Iraq, building an airbase and increasing military footprint in Jordan itself. So moving on again. <clears throat> Uh, on July the 29th, a 27-year-old shepherd was kidnapped and 300 sheep stolen by ISIS terrorists riding motorbikes, two four-wheeled vehicles carrying machine guns east of Raqqa. Now, people might smile and say, well, it's just sheep. Sheep are actually one of the major resources for Syrians now, particularly as the U.S. is occupying the majority of their agricultural resources and their oil resources in the northeast and terrorists in the northwest are also occupying much of their agricultural resources. So these uh, sheep and shepherds are extremely valuable to Syria. Then we have a quick look at uh, Russian-Syrian uh, targeting uh, Al-Qaeda or Hayat Tahrir al-Sham bases in Idlib. Just roll the video very quickly. It doesn't have any sound. But I think what's extraordinary is if you look at this uh, targeting of al-Qaeda bases, what you will be met with in Western media, of course, is the white helmet propaganda that civilians and civilian infrastructure, hospitals, etc., are being targeted. You can see quite clearly there that those headquarters are in the middle of nowhere. We then have an interesting statement put out by the Syrian foreign minister, Faisal Muqtad, who met with his Iranian counterpart, Hossein Amir, 
Abdullayan in Tehran on Monday. Uh, Mcdad came out fairly belligerently after this meeting. Um, he said that it's better for the U.S. Army to withdraw from Syria before it's forced to do so. Very strong language from Mcdad. We haven't seen that before. Practical steps are being taken to implement the agreements reached during President Raisi's recent visit to Syria, where, of course, they uh, discussed mutual defense uh, treaties. We are satisfied with developments in the region as effective diplomacy between nations promises good results for the people. Those who seek to obstruct those efforts should know that the Arab peoples are tired of the authoritarian U.S. coalition practices that seek to maintain the Zionist occupation of Arab lands, including, of course, in that the Golan territories annexed in 1967. The crimes of the U.S. occupation in Syria cannot continue, and the Syrian people will not tolerate this indefinitely. The U.S. occupation army must withdraw, he repeated again, from the land it occupies. The U.S. wants Al-Tanef region, which it occupies, to be a hub of terror organizations, including ISIS, another U.S. proxy, to dispatch elsewhere in the region and the world, potentially, of course, Africa and Ukraine. The U.S. and its separatist Kurdish militias continue to plunder oil and deprive the Syrian people of their resources, while Turkey, and I included their NATO member state, deprives the two million inhabitants of Al-Hasaka of water. And just moving in, a comment from uh, Sayyid Mohammed Morandi in Iran. He, he states that the region is much closer to war than what most people think. The Israeli and U.S. regimes should not underestimate the resolve of the resistance. They and their interests are vulnerable across the region. So we are seeing a definite potting up of the conflict. We're seeing still mass mobilization of Syrian Arab army uh, military to the north, the northeast and the Northwest. So, uh, and, and we're seeing clearly uh, an increased interference by the US when it comes to uh, basically Russian and Syrian controlled airspace. So I think we're, we're heading uh, definitely for some kind of escalation. Uh, Vanessa, thank you very much for that. Um, as you gave that report, what was in my mind, of course, is the parallel events in, in Ukraine where we're seeing the US and, and NATO desperate, desperate to keep the war going so that their uh, political aims can be achieved, which they've stated very clearly in international press, is the overthrow of the Russian president and effectively the splitting up of Russia itself. Um, if, if we had trouble in one region, we could say, well, possibly it's accidental. It's to do with uh, failures of politics at a local and international level. But when we have the same pattern happening in two very large um, locations in the world, this cannot possibly be an accident. I think it is so sad that we are here in 2023 and we simply can't stop these wars because of the powers that clearly want the wars to take place with an eye on assets. Okay, well, thank you for that. Let's uh, move on to our last uh, topic uh, for today's news. And this is back on the subject of the drag queens. Now, on Monday, I mentioned on the news that UK Column had actually sent an email to Oxford City Council asking them some questions about the use of the drag queens and the drag queen training for young people. Um, to my surprise, their media team did respond. And here's the answer. Uh, 
An Oxford City Council spokesperson said our Community Impact Fund grants support uh, to a wide range of activities, or sorry, the grants support a wide range of activities, including activities for young people during the summer holidays, and they aim to offer opportunities that provide something for everyone. The Drag Week application went through a scrutiny process like all applications and is suitable for a youth audience. Remember, according to their own data, they're talking about children from the age of 13, although it's been reported as 14 in some places. They go on to say it's a professional performance training opportunity for young people with an interest in drama and stage work and offers an inclusive activity that is open to all young people, not only LGBT youth. Um, places are limited. Well, that was the response. Um, let's remind ourselves, uh, this is one of the local papers reporting on the drag camp. Council-sponsored drag camp to help children find their drag voice. Now, my question is, for children to find a voice in drag, which is adult sexual entertainment, is this grooming? I certainly believe it is. I would believe many other parents would, but there's no doubting what uh, uh, T Art Tart Productions are up to here. Um, but now we can be clear that they have the full support of um, Oxford City Council. There have been some demonstrations and the Oxford Mail uh, that was making this report was good enough to actually highlight it. But of course, what we've got here is protests and counter protests. So if you're a concerned parent and you try and speak out, you're going to be faced with a counter protest by people supporting the idea of drag queens teaching children. Um, I thought it was important that we looked at who'd been making the decision. So in Oxford City Council, this particular councillor, uh, Ajaz Rahman, is the uh, member for inclusive communities. And if we look at the statements that he, he has made publicly, we come back to the very statements that were given in the email to the UK column. So we simply have a line, a line coming out from uh, Oxford City Council. So this is exactly the same as the uh, email. It apparently, the event of the drag queens went through a uh, scrutiny process. We'll come on to that. But it's suitable it's suitable for a youth audience and uh, it's all professional. It's a training opportunity and you better get in there quick because places are limited. Now, I can suspect that a lot of our viewers are asking a key question and that's, yes, but what can we do about that? And I think that there are some very simple things that people can be doing. They can email or write politely to the leader. Don't just send it to the council, identify the leader and address your email or letter to them. Uh, you've got the local MP, also write to the local party chairman um, with your concerns. Why should you write to the local party chairman? Because these are the people who look after the MP and they are the people who are trained to keep an ear for dissent within the constituency. So if you want to start putting a little bit of anxiety into the MP, start targeting the party chairman with those polite emails and letters. But of course, if you're local, 
Uh, also write to your own counsellor because the same rule applies. They get very nervous when people start to write to them directly. You should also be writing to Oxford City Council Freedom of Information Officer and ask for the minutes of the meetings in which the Oxford councillors discuss the drag queen training for children, deciding that sexualised drag acts are suitable for children. Who You want to know who was in the meeting and what was said by the individuals taking part in that meeting. And if we follow it through with just a couple more things, um, email and write to the Oxfordshire Child Safeguarding Board and Oxford City Council and ask for the child protection risk assessment that was carried out for this TART drag queen training. Uh, I suspect there isn't one, but asking the question is extremely powerful. And you might also like to write to Thames Valley Police under Freedom of Information, asking for a copy of the child protection risk assessment as the police operate uh, in partnership as part of that child safeguarding board. So these are very simple things that if enough people do it, we can make a, uh, a real impact on the people making these disgraceful decisions. Um, now, we also got a very interesting email from a lady called Nikki, who flagged up the I newspaper where there was an article saying that thousands of engineers and gas employees are to be given training to recognize signs of abuse and neglect so that they can identify children at risk while they are working. More than 18,000 workers across England, Scotland and Wales will be given safeguarding training by the NSPCC and for, quote, gas, distribute, sorry, gas distribution networks. So think about this. We've now got gas companies coming into your house to spy, but it's all for the protection of children. Uh, going back to the basics, here's NSPCC's headline. We're training gas engineers to recognize signs of abuse and neglect. And uh, it goes on to give detail about how this is going to work. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says the training, it's your call. It'll help to give workers who visit people's homes the knowledge and confidence to seek support if they have concerns, including calling our helpline. But of course, one of the things is that if NSPCC does the training, those gas engineers are going to believe that NSPCC is a safe vehicle to make these reports when for the UK column at least, uh, many child abuse survivors are extremely wary of this organisation for a number of reasons. But here's uh, from NSPCC, Sir Peter Wanlist, the chief executive, saying that uh, they, we, are hugely excited about this project and grateful to Ofgem and all the gas distribution networks for supporting this wonderful partnership. So your gas engineer is going to become a Stasi spy, and uh, we should all relax because if they make a report concerning the safety of children, that wonderful organization, NSPCC, is gonna look after it from there. Will the gas engineer's report mean that children are taken away from parents? I believe the answer is yes. 100% that's going to happen. And in many cases, those children will be taken on false pretenses. And I say that based on what is happening around us and through um, child protection today. 
Before we leave this little segment, and you're probably still thinking, my goodness, can I now trust the man who comes in to fix my boiler or read the meter? Let's take ourselves back um, to when David Scott was doing some extremely good work um, to do with child protection, the named person scheme up in Scotland. And uh, he, at the time, got hold of an interesting uh, audio clip where Jim Tarras, the Scottish Borders Child Protection uh, Committee Training and Development Officer, is talking about what's happening and taxis. Let's have a listen to this. The main thing that you have to understand is, though, is that if you're contracted out for services to the local authority, you will have a duty a legal duty to assist the named person, right? Now you can imagine the conversations I've been having whilst I've been doing taxi driver training, right? Because we have over 600 taxi drivers, okay, are contracted to the Scottish Borders Council, okay, to transport young children, adults at risk of harm, you know, to various places. And I have to explain to them that if they're covered by the GIRFEC system, or, as I said, are vulnerable young adults and all the rest of it, etc. They, as taxi drivers, also have a duty to tell us what's been happening. And this idea of, you know, what happens in the taxi stays in the taxi doesn't exist anymore. You've got to tell us because it's a legal duty. We have the taxi drivers, okay, that I've spoken to, who are contracted to the Scottish Borders Council. They say, who's no your job? And I'm saying, well, it is now, if you've got a contract with the council, okay? Um, if a child tells you something in the actual front seat of the car, okay, or behind you, that this happened last night and all the rest of it, and you're concerned about it, I said to her. And then I went on to ask, what happens if that happens? What do you do? Where do you go? And a lot of them didn't think to get out of the car at the school and go in and speak to the teachers. I had to explain to them that that was the step that they should take. It's quite interesting, okay, how this is affecting lots and lots of dis different organisations where you're effectively having to explain to them that passing on information and the duty to assist the named person uh, means that you will have to know about the, f the it's quite clear that you can pass on this information. So there we are, 2023 and the extraordinary um, situation in UK uh, that we will have gas engineers and taxi drivers spying on their passengers in the interests of child safety. But at the same time, we've got councils perfectly happy that highly sexualized entertainers are going to be training children in their arts. And in the background, we've got failures, consistent failures by the UK state uh, to protect children from all manner of uh, abuses. So is this confusion accidental? I don't think it is. I think this is designed to confuse the public so they can't see the real attack, which is on our privacy as adults, uh, but also they are after the minds of the children. We'll leave it there, leave you to think about that. We'll say thank you very much for joining UK Column and a big thank you to uh, Vanessa Beely and uh, Debbie Evans and our guest, Harvey Seligman, for his excellent contribution on matters to do with VAERS data. We'll leave it there. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. And if you're a subscriber of UK Column, uh, in a few minutes time, we will be doing a UK column extra. So join us for that. We'll leave it there. Bye bye.